going. But good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning, this last week of Sunday Advent before we light the Christ candle on Christmas. Um, just an update on Pastor Elvin. Been asking Connie a lot, but we might as well just put it out there for everybody. His surgery, to my knowledge, was successful, but he's in quite a bit of pain right now. He's got a lot of recovery, many weeks of PT to head. So if you can and you're willing, please call him, show some love. Uh, he's hurting. Yeah, Connie, is that accurate? Thumbs up? Yes, that's a true statement. So we're going to pray for him before we begin. Let's just take a moment. Um, Mac, would you pray for Pastor Elvin before we even begin the service? Just lift him up. because he's preaching next Sunday, so he better be here. So, <laughs> but, but as we move to the sermon, uh, in all seriousness, as many of you are aware, um, especially if you watch the news, our world always seems to be in chaos. Something crazy is always happening, or we expect the next crazy thing. The war in Ukraine seems to have no end, and peace talks don't seem to be a priority on anybody's table. We have a nation that deliberately affirms the murder of children and that loves sexual perversion to no end. And on top of that, we have record high inflation and national debt. So Merry Christmas, right? Things always just seem crazy, but it's the normal crazy. Like we just accept it as, oh, it's just crazy. It kind of is what it is. And this isn't even covering the oppression of the Chinese government, the constant war and brutality throughout Africa and Yemen the insane COVID lockdowns in Australia, or the brutal poverty and orphan problem that exists in much of the civilized world. Chaos just seems to be everywhere, and this is because it really is. And, but sometimes it's just, it's just too much to bear or to think about. It. The sin and the chaos of the world can be so overwhelming. It just causes the head to spin and the heart to despair. But it's real, and we always really need to address it. As the psalmist says, you, God, have shown your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. And this is because it's the mercy of God. We, as his people, need to know that the only solution to the sin and the chaos in the world and the sin and the chaos in your own life it only is, the solution is only found in Christ, God's gift of peace to us. Because church, you will either have Christ or you will either have chaos. There's no in-between. It's either Christ or chaos. It's either the garden or hell. There's no other choices. And Christmas is our memorial of this reality. Some cold, bleak winter night in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago, God the Son the Prince of Peace himself stepped out of heaven to be born as a man. Peace literally came to the earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And on the eve of his betrayal, after living a sinless life, on the eve of his betrayal, 
He said these things to his disciples concerning the peace that he came to bring and the peace that he gives. If you can and are willing, please stand for the words of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Two short verses, both on the eve of his betrayal. John 14, 27, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Second verse, John sixteen thirty three. I have said these things to you that in me, Jesus, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, or be courageous, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come this morning to hear your word, speak to us through it, illuminate our hearts and our minds, give us ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart willing to obey. Make this Jesus known, this Prince of Peace. Do what only you can do. Preach Christ to us this morning. Our hope for peace in a chaotic world. And the people of God said, you may be seated. Church, it's from these words of Jesus that we have the main point for our sermon this morning. It's simply this, is that Jesus Christ, God's gift of peace, gives true peace that is all-encompassing. Jesus Christ gives the peace that is all-encompassing. And this is not just the, um, the cute things we put on a plaque in our kitchen or the Hallmark cards we give at the season. You know, this is the Word of God. This is Jesus himself, the Prince of Peace, saying he gives us real peace. It's substantive. It's, it's real. It's not just good vibes. It's the reality that he gives you and the people of God real peace peace. It's not just theory, it's reality. For across the pages of the Bible, we see how the peace that Jesus Christ gives to us interacts and transforms all areas of our lives. First and foremost, it is through Jesus that we have peace with our good creator. Ever since the fall of man in the garden, sin and death entered into the creation And humanity, including you and including me and including every man, woman, and child that has been born, has been at war with God over who will be God, who will be the ultimate authority. And you and I, we live and breathe and do as we see fit, and we denounce or kill anyone or anything who suggests that what we are doing is evil or wrong or gets in the way of our agendas because clearly I know everything. I know what's what, I know how to live, and not even God himself will tell me what's wrong. But God in his mercy describes sinful humanity in terms like this. He says that humanity is alienated and hostile in mind towards him, that we do nothing but evil deeds, that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the devil, and we do this by carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. This is what God says about you and me. And he says our mouths are full of curses and bitterness, that our feet are swift to shed blood, our paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace we have not known. 
There is no fear of God in us, the Almighty says. So when you and I live as we see fit, we are only fulfilling what the God of the universe says is true about us. We're at war with the Almighty. We are carrying out our own desires. And this is true for individuals as well as for entire nations. But church, the enemies of God will not survive their unholy war against their good creator. For the scripture tells us that on the last day, every single person will give an account for their sinful war crimes against the great king and receive the sentence for their rebellion. As Christians, we know what happens, right? When a person rebels against God all their days, there's no expectation of hope. There's no joy. There's just judgment. And the scripture tells us very plainly at the end of days, all who rejected the gospel will find their place in the lake of fire with the devil and the demons. So there's no happy ending. There's no stability, no joy separate from submitting to God and his kingdom. But submission is not in us. Only rebellion. We need help. We need someone to end our losing war. Therefore, because of God's great love for you and for me, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from ourselves and to bring harmony and peace between you and your good creator. Romans 5.1, our communion verse, reiterating, says it all so plainly. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he achieved this peace by paying for it with his very life when he hung on that old rugged cross. For it is only by the elimination of sin and death that peace with God is possible. And this is exactly what Jesus' death accomplishes, what his atonement brings or his propitiation, words like that, his reconciliation, what he does. He brings the sinful party back into harmony with the creator because sin and death have been removed through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. You and I now, because of who Jesus is and what he did, and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can enter back into the garden where we were made to be. Humanity made in God's image was made to live in the garden. We were made for great things with God. We were made to walk with the Almighty, to know him, to love him, and be loved by him. Jesus, his body, broken on the cross, and his spilt blood is the key that unlocks the door to enter back into that garden state with the God, the one who gives you meaning, true meaning and purpose to your life. That's what Jesus' cross does for us. That's the peace that he wants for us. But this peace is only applied to those enemy combatants who agree to its terms. When two parties come to peace, there's always terms for peace agreements, right? You can't just say we have peace without agreeing on how to have it. So Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, Mark 16, 15 to 16, or any of the ends of the Gospels, the Great Commission is put forward, how this peace comes to humanity. Mark 16, 15 to 16 says, And Jesus said to the apostles, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel, the good news to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Those are the peace terms of Jesus Christ. Simply put, trust in the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross and confess him and you'll have peace with God. It's not a trick. It's the truth. It's the gospel. It's simple. Anybody can understand the gospel. And we never want to cloud that or make it difficult to understand how the hurting soul, the sinful soul, can be made right with their creator. It's through Jesus Christ. 
And not only does this peace Jesus give restore us to God, it also restores us to our fellow man. For through Jesus, we have peace with one another. You know, despite what our culture says about love, it has absolutely no clue what this thing called love is. This is because in the same breath, we can tell someone I love you and then tell them a lie. Or think of how often we deceive one another in business deals. Or how many wars and mass murders have occurred throughout human history. Or people will swear to one another at the marriage altar, but then quickly go and find another lover. Breaking their vows, breaking their promises, abandoning their spouses. And then you and I just call it no-fault divorce, which is a lie. Things like this so easily prove we really don't love one another as we should. And again, God describes a humanity in this way, and he affirms it through his word, saying that humanity is foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So not only do the scripture says that we hate God, the scriptures also say that we hate one another, and our thoughts and our actions prove it. The only thing we truly love is ourselves. And since we clearly can't fix ourselves, for a thing, I've been thinking about this, how many peace talks or accords or whatever name they give them, how many peace summits have occurred that didn't really bring peace? World War I, the war to end all worlds, at war to end all wars, and yet they had a sequel, right? It just, it doesn't stop. It just keeps going on. Chaos, destruction just does not stop. And we think we can just fix it. Or when someone says, this time communism will work, this time we'll get it right, and it just keeps failing. We just keep doing the same things. We just call it a different name, but it's still the same thing. It's just chaos and sin everywhere. We need someone to intervene, someone to bring real peace between mankind, between our neighbors. And just as Christ brings peace between God and man, he also gives peace between fellow humans. For when you have peace with God, you will want to have peace with others. You will want to love your neighbor this is why almost every New Testament letter church deals with relationships in the church. Almost all of them. Our sample today is from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Paul talking to the Ephesians. He says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, compel you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you hear those words? Eager. Are you eager to have peace and harmony and unity in the church? Do you, are you eager to have unity in your marriage? To have peace in your marriage? Are you, are you eager like that? Are you excited about it? And so he gives us this command. He goes, you, this is a, you have to have peace in the church. You have to. It's, a not, it's not, not an option if that double negative works. So we have to. We can't just be fighting and tearing at one another. I'm sure if we went around the room, somebody has a story of a church split that was over something really, really, really stupid. I'm sure of it. But he doesn't just tell us to have peace. He then actually shows us what this looks like, how to actually have peace with one another, action steps, if you will, what unity looks like. Down to verse 25 and 32 of the same chapter, he has a paragraph where he says, here's one way to have unity and peace. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, or like gossip, be put away from you along with all malice or hatred. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our relationships, our peace and unity, that's the substance of it. And the bedrock is that because you've been forgiven, you must forgive and get along with other Christians. Who are you to be at war with your fellow believer? That's kind of what he's getting at. So church, this peace and love and unity we're to have towards our fellow Christian, it's so central to our faith. It's almost in every letter how we're to have engagements with one another, how we do this life together. So much so that your salvation is measured by it. The Apostle John says in his first letter, chapter 3, 13 to 15, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Think of those simple words the apostle says. If you don't love your fellow Christian, then clearly you haven't entered into eternal life yet. You don't really know this Jesus we're talking about. If you can, in good conscience, say, I hate that person in the pews behind me. That's a sobering thought. I cannot love God, my wife and kids, and I definitely can't love all you all and maintain peaceful relationships as I'm supposed to without Jesus' help. And neither can you. For it is only through Jesus Christ and the life-giving peace he gives us that we can really live as God intended for us to live in harmony with our creator and in harmony with one another. There's an old saying about the cross, how the beam, one beam goes vertical, connecting you to God, and the other beam goes horizontal, connecting mankind together. This is a true saying. You can't love God and hate the people you can see. And you can't say, I hate the people I see and claim to love the invisible. It doesn't work that way. We must love God and love our neighbor and strive for peace and harmony in the church. Because think about this, the world hates us. Outside of the church, the world hates the message of the gospel. They hate Christians. Christians are one of the most persecuted people in the history. Like if you trace the last 2,000 years, more Christians have been killed than any other people group. From the communist governments to dictators, whatever, they kill Christians. Because we say our highest authority is Jesus and no king. So if the world hates us and there's no peace outside of these walls, we really should strive to love one another and have peace in the church. Because outside of this lifeboat, what, what, what else is there? And not only does this peace affect our relationship with God and man, it also, this peace sustains us in our trials and our tribulations or our suffering. For through Jesus, we have peace in our sufferings. Church, there are many times in life when you will suffer. 
This, this is, should not be new to anybody here, but just in case the Bible affirms, you will suffer. Just by the very fact you breathe, you're going to go through pain in life. From sickness and disease, to the death of a loved one, to persecution from the world, or just the general hardship of living. Losing a job, difficulties in marriage, rambunctious kids, getting old. We suffer. Some will suffer more, some will suffer less, but everybody will suffer some. And how we respond to suffering can make and break our faith. For many people have started this Christian journey and endured for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises because of the cross, many have fallen away. Or the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches have led many to be enemies of the cross. But the peace that Jesus gives is sufficient to endure any trial or temptation life has to offer you. Philippians 4, 6-7, very familiar verse, says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Church, the simple trick, and I use trick in quotes, it's not really a trick, but like the simple thing to do when you're suffering is continual prayer. You want to know how to get to through anything in life? It's prayer. Because prayer is how God brings peace to you. Because prayer is how we have an active relationship with the Almighty. God knows your pain. He knows your sufferings. He knows, everything. He knows what's going on with you. And he knows you cannot endure on your own. He doesn't leave you to fight the battle on your own strength either. He has given you the greatest life preserver and the greatest weapon for battle. Prayer and his word. As simple as that sounds. It's, it's almost cliche how we say that. Like, have you prayed about it? You know, I know you've been someone, you have a friend, you're going through something bad. You'd be like, have you prayed? As maybe improper as that may seem in the moment or as cliche as it sounds. Church, is that not the answer? He tells us right, right here. He goes, when you're going through it, pray. When you're anxious about the trials, pray. When you can't hold on to this Jesus any longer, pray. And the promise comes with it. For when you do, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which, how can you explain that, will preserve your heart and mind in Christ. It'll protect you. There's a clear promise. Even if it's cliche to say, it is true. Prayer is how God brings peace to the troubled soul. I don't doubt if we did testimonies in this room of terrible things people have been through, the story would end the same way. God kept me when everything in me wanted to quit. I can't explain it. I just prayed and he kept me. He protected my heart from quitting. And they would all end with some words like that. This is truly an experiential thing. You, until you're actually going through it, you, you can't explain it, right? But we can see its effects. The peace that protects our mind, hearts and minds and keeps us in the faith from Jesus. Church Christians will die without fear because of this peace. Christians will trust God despite losing everything. Christians have had their bodies burned, possessions confiscated, endured prison, beatings, unlawful prosecution, and they've even been fed to wild animals in the stadium in front of sick and perverse rulers because of this peace. And they, all they had to do was burn a simple incense stick to Caesar's, to Caesar's image. If you ever read the church fathers, so many Christians were like, listen, you don't have to believe in Caesar. You don't have to believe he's a God. You just have to publicly burn this little bit of incense. And you won't die, Christian. 
I'm not telling you to denounce Jesus, just you got to burn the incense. You know, you got to drink the juice and you'll, you'll live. And they didn't. They didn't because they prayed diligently and they know who was their, they entrusted their souls to. They had peace that it was going to be okay. It kept them in the fight. Church, God's peace will keep you. We just read it. He promises it will. But you got to actually pray and seek his face because all this is relational we're talking about. And we see this pattern of prayer for strength, prayer for endurance, prayer for peace in the life of Jesus himself. It says he would go out for the whole night and fall on his face and pray to God for strength. Throughout the Gospels, the apostles, the same thing in the book of Acts, the church fathers, all the martyrs, like, because this is the promise of God. Prayer brings peace, and we can't explain it, because what else would keep us in the faith other than the grace of God? Prayer brings the peace of Jesus. And lastly, not only does the peace of Jesus grant us peace with our creator, peace with our fellow man, peace in the sufferings that doesn't make sense because we want to preserve ourselves, but it just is there. He keeps us in the faith. The peace with Jesus also brings peace with the creation itself because through Jesus, we will have peace with the created order. And what I mean is that ever since the garden, man has had conflict with God, man has had conflict with their fellow man, and the creation itself has been under a curse. The ground produces weeds and thorns, diseases spread, wildfires consume, volcanoes erupt, destroying whole civilizations, tornadoes, tidal waves, you know, any natural phenomenon, you name it, it destroys life. We see it all the time. The earth itself seems to be at war with those living on it. But it won't always be so. For in the same way the peace of Christ restores humanity back to God, brings us back into the garden, the peace of Christ will also transform the very created order, the universe, back into the garden we're called to live in, bringing harmony. Hear what the Apostle Paul says about this, about the creation itself being renewed. Romans eight nineteen to 24. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation or the whole created order was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So church, in the same way, you ever ache for heaven? You ever ache for the old pains of old age to go away? Do you ache to never have a sinful thought again? Do you ache to see your loved ones again? When you ache for that perfection that you know is only in Christ, for that future resurrection when only life will remain, Paul says that the created order itself groans and waits to be made new. And the same way you and I ache for heaven, the creation itself groans to be fixed, to be reconciled fully to God. And we don't know exactly what this new heavens and earth will be like. In the same way we can't fully explain what the resurrection life will look like, being in a world where that won't have death anymore. But the Bible gives us a little insight at the end of the story in Revelation 21, 
verse 1 through 4, describes this renewed creation. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, or a new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, the way things are right now, will have passed away. Church, one day, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, will walk in the cool of the garden with us again. We have that sure promise. We will live again with him in this perfection. And the universe will know nothing but peace. No more wars, no more pain, no more suffering. A real promise from the creator himself that he's going to make things right. He's going to make you right, me right. The whole created order will be nothing but peace. And all of this is possible because the Son of God, the Prince of Peace himself, came in a manger 2,000 years ago to live that perfect sinless life to secure our salvation and the restoration of all things. The Bible begins with a garden, and it ends with a garden. It began in peace. It will end in peace. And this is the peace our Jesus gives as a promise to the world. Have you embraced that peace? Have you accepted his terms? Have you entered into the kingdom of peace? Or are you still in chaos? Are you still struggling and fighting with God? You know, I thought as closing, I was having a hard time writing closing this week. But you know when you get a silly picture in your head, you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. You all seen the bumper sticker that says, no peace, no Jesus, and then K-N, like no Jesus, no peace? As cliche as that bumper sticker is, it's true. There is no peace without the Prince of Peace. And you can only know this peace that surpasses all understanding, the life God made you for, if you know and have bowed the knee to this Prince of Peace, the King of Glory. Have you done that? This Christmas season is the perfect time for you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this gift of peace that's only found in your Son, that the cross of Christ secured eternal peace for your people, peace with you, peace with one another. You sustain us in this life with your peace. You keep us in the faith. And one day you're going to fix the created order and only peace will remain for the former things will pass away and you'll make all things new. This is our Christian hope. This is why you were born, Jesus. Write these truths on our heart. Help us strive to be peacemakers with one another. Because you say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. Or is that the meek? I can't remember. But Lord, thank you for your goodness. Be with us in this service. Remaining time, glorify Christ.